Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Dr. Sam. It's Tessa's birthday, everybody. Yes, on the day that we are recording this, it is my birthday. I will not be insufferable about it for the rest of the episode. But I will. <laughs> Joining us this week is Jarrett of the podcast Wild Pretty Things. Hello, Jarrett. Hi. Happy birthday, Tessa. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today. I'm so excited uh, because I was on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, so I'm excited to now talk with you on Monkey. Thanks for having me. This week is an unintentional themed week. Because every single one of us changed our monkeys at the last minute. So that'll be a really fun conversation as we go on. You know, life is hard. Sometimes plans just change. Rarely do they change for everybody within the space of 24 hours. But, you know, life is hard. This week, Jarrett drove a lawnmower to be with us today. Sam doesn't want to be anyone other than what he's been trying to be lately. Andy spooks himself and his dog. And I commit the worst crime you can commit against a corporation. I'm going to need some <laughs> gasps on that one. I mean, it's a terrible crime. What? Dive straight into our first monkey with Jarrett. So Jarrett, this week you watched The Straight Story. Now, for those of us like me or our audience who maybe haven't seen this film, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? And why it was distributed by Walt Disney? <laughs> <laughs> So The Straight Story is the last movie that David Lynch made in the 20th century. So his movie before Mulholland Drive. So The Straight Story is the rare late career. I, I guess, yeah, I would put it late career Lynch movie that was not a project that or originated with him. Somebody presented the script to him. I don't actually know who. He read it. He didn't actually expect to be interested in it, but he fell in love with the story. Seeing the movie, it's easy to know why. It has a lot of themes that he likes to deal with, but the story is about uh, an elderly man whose health is failing. But after he learns that, he learns that his brother has had a stroke. His brother and he are estranged. They haven't seen each other in decades, I believe. And they live, I think it's 600 miles away. Uh, the main character... His eyesight, health, things like that aren't good enough to drive a car. So he decides to drive a lawnmower all the way to see his brother. And he meets lots of people along the way. It's, it's a road movie, a very slow road movie in every sense of the word. I have to admit that when I heard you were doing the straight story and that it was David Lynch, I was not expecting the lawnmower twist. Like, I don't know what I was the expecting, twist. but not that. Yeah, so this this came out in 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 '99, as you mentioned, and and I was trying to think. I I don't. I mean, that was a long time ago, so I don't remember. It's very possible I saw a preview for this movie when I was seeing Magnolia, which we're mm, going to yeah. talk about next week. But I saw a lot of movies that year, so I saw the preview for this movie many many times. The lawnmower is the concept of the, like it's it's like it's like mm -hmm. all you really know about the movie is he's driving a lawnmower across the screen and that's pretty much what the preview is. Wow. So is this just because did you watch this movie because you wanted to I'm I'm not sure about your Lynch list. Are you a hundred percent in your Lynch list? Are you just crossing off another one off the list? Why were you 
wanting to watch this film. So it's been on my list for a long time. I've been into Lynch since I was an adolescent when Twin Peaks was on the air. I laughed uh, when you said something about watching Magnolia and it being in this movie coming out a long time ago because this movie came out the year I graduated high school. <laughs> but for whatever <laughs> reason, I was a junior in college. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm used to being the only, the oldest person on the podcast. So I just assumed that I was again. <laughs> not, not with Sam, not with Sam on the podcast. I was nine. <laughs> same that's, Andy, same. That's uh, how old I was when Twin Peaks started. I don't know why I was watching Twin Peaks. I don't know how much of it I understood. I just remember like talking to my friends about it at school and, and loving the show. And then I got even more into him when Lost Highway came out because Lost Highway is like me in the 90s in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> I had just I pulled up the soundtrack because that's what I was yeah. thinking about. That's what. You know, the one that it's got the perfect drug on it and um, uh, I, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Angelo Badalamenti. I mean, it's a really good soundtrack. I've never seen the movie. Bowie. Yeah. There's a track on the soundtrack of, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it's Badalamenti or who playing saxophone. And so Pullman is a saxophonist. Yeah. <laughs> saxophonist, however you say that in the movie. That scene yeah. is iconic to we me. just call it the Bill Clintoner. I, I thought you were going to yeah. mention the Ramstein song, and I'm like, nope, yeah. talked about the saxophone. My bad. So part of the reason I wanted to do Lynch is the latest episode of our podcast that we recorded, we did Mulholland Drive for their 20th anniversary. It just got uh, a new Criterion release. It's the first 4K Criterion disc. And at this point in my life, the straight story was the only Lynch feature that I had not seen yet. He's got a ton of shorts. He's got like pilots and uh, episodes of TV of shows that only lasted three episodes and stuff like that all over the place. So I, I ha I'm not a Lynch completist in that sense. I have seen some of his shorts, but the straight story completes his features for me that he directed. I'm talking a lot about Lynch and not much about the actual movie, but <laughs> no, that's okay. My next question was actually going to be: You mentioned that this movie had a lot of themes that Lynch is interested in. What are some of those themes that you recognized? So Lynch is someone who tends to tell stories from the margins. And by that, I mean that he tells stories that the mainstream often isn't interested in. You know, Twin Peaks starts as what to us now is commonplace is like a procedural about a dead woman or a dead girl, actually. But it eventually becomes about that young woman. And there's not a lot of people doing serious stories about teenage girls in the 90s or before then, or, or even now, really. You know, the Elephant Man, great example, you know, a, a character who exists in the margins of society. So the straight story is about an elderly man. You know, there are not a lot of like movies about elderly people as the stars or about people who are dying Slowly, you know, there's a lot of movies about death, but it's usually like quicker deaths and stuff, yeah. but or deaths that are unusual, you know, young people who are dying is, is a subgenre. And I don't know what because it's based on a true story. So I don't know what Lynch brought to it and what was already there. There's this reoccurring theme 
of part uh, like the symbol of these two brothers reconciling is that when they were kids, they used to look up at the stars and you know, Lynch is someone who sees a lot of universal truth in the universe. He believes in the unified field that energy and ideas and stuff come from. And also, so the main character is a World War II veteran with PTSD that's addressed a little bit in the movie. And that's a group of people that Lynch is very passionate about working with his, um, his, I forget what the name of it is, but his TM group works a lot with people with PTSD to help them through transcendental meditation, overcome those struggles. It's his big like charity passion. And, and he does a lot of conferences and Ted talk type things about meditation and stuff. There's nothing about meditation in the movie, but you can see those themes there and Lynch like thinking because the guy the movie is about died a few years before the movie came out. And you can see Lynch like thinking like this could have helped this guy. And I think that may be the starting point for him getting interested in those kind of people specifically. I don't I'm don't quote me on that. I know the actual organization started like five or six years later but I don't know if he was already interested in stuff like that before then. What did you think about the film itself? Was this, did this live up to your expectations? Did it not? So this is one of Lynch's best reviewed movies, which surprised me when I learned that not because I thought that it was a bad movie, but because people talk about Mulholland Drive so much being Lynch's greatest film and, and being one of the greatest films of this century. And also over the past few years, people have talked a lot about 99 being this like seminal year in mm-hmm. cinema, which I think is purely a generational thing. I don't think that's actually true. I think people have exaggerated the quality no, of movies that came out that year because of other cultural things. Although there were several good movies that came out that year. But the straight story is not one that often comes up on that list of like, here are the great, all the great movies that came out in 99, but it is a very good movie. I don't know if I would call it a great movie. I might have to revisit it to decide that, but it has almost all of the Lynch trademarks, even though it's not a surreal movie. It's not, you know, weird with a capital W like a lot of Lynch, but it has a lot of his stylistic elements it has a lot of his themes it even like he finds a way to work doubles doppelgangers if you will into the story and just you know lynch tells stories about real quote unquote you know quirky people the kind of people that you would meet if you went into a general store in a small town things like that so wait uh you said that there are doppelgangers in this is this uh maybe a prequel to the uh, denny villeneuve film enemy (laughs) (laughs) i think villeneuve is doing when he's doing enemy i think he's i mean people were doing movies about doppelgangers before lynch but lynch like popularized that for sure mostly with twin peaks but ever since then all his movies have doppelgangers and do they kill the doppelgangers? Like, you, you, that, that's the one thing I have always known. If you meet a doppelganger, you kill them. That's why I can never meet Seth Rogen. He does uh, kill them with comedy, and capitalistically, he kills them. So there's the literal doppelgangers. There's a set of twins that work on the lawnmower, and like they try to charge the main character, Alan, what he thinks is too much money. 
and he negotiates with them. And there's a joke about that is the price twice what it should be because they're twins, stuff like that. But also Alan and his brother Lyle are in a way doppelgangers of each other, you know, living in similar situations, going through similar experiences in different states, you know, separated by this distance. They they don't look exactly alike, but, you know, in, in a general sense. What about Richard Farnsworth? I, I make assumptions that probably aren't good, but if you lived during the 80s and you know Richard Farnsworth, you probably know him as Matthew Cuthbert from the uh, Sullivan in a Green Gables series. So like this 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 person is very important to me for this a very specific reason. And I kind of always wanted to see this movie because he was in it and then he died and I still haven't seen it. So will I be disappointed? Oh no, definitely not. And I think he's nominated for an Oscar for this and before Anthony Hopkins he had the record for oldest person nominated for an Oscar. I mean, he is the movie, you know, uh, Outside of the Lynch stuff, which does it for me, like most people, what works for them in this movie is him, his performance, his story, his very subtle emotional journey, because Lynch is a very subtle director. And and that's another like Lynchism that's in this movie that the emotional growth, the conflict, everything is like very subtle. Who would you recommend this movie to for our listeners who may be interested? What are the kinds of things that you think would draw someone to this movie? Or who would you say wouldn't like this movie? Well, people who watch movies and turn them off or complain about them because they're too slow. People who get frustrated with what most people would call exaggerated performances, but what I would call actually pretty realistic like to have characters repeat the same line over and over as they're like struggling with a really mundane thing to me is super realistic especially for people who live in more rural areas which is where i come from it's something i'm used to like with my family and and whatever else so those are the people who should not watch it the first thought i had about who to recommend it to is anybody who likes Nomadland. This is like the straight okay. story is there's a straight line, not to make a pun that was unintentional from <laughs> the straight story to Nomadland, which is in a way is a little bit sad. I think there are probably more movies like this that I don't know about um, or that I haven't caught up with yet or that are on my watch list or whatever. But again, there are not a lot of well-made, beautiful movies about elderly people that deal with this kind of end of life stuff, but also the road movies, movies with beautiful shots of landscape landscapes. I'm not going to lie. And we'll, we'll, we'll transition to talking about your list making. This sounds really interesting to me, but the whole idea of him driving across America on a lawnmower really is giving me forced Gump running across America. Like, did you make that connection at all? Like, is that something yeah. I should be making or no? I don't know if you should be. I definitely had the thought watching it that people should sh- shut up about Forrest Gump and quit watching, rewatching or watching Forrest Gump and watch this movie instead. So I'm the right age to have like grown up loving Forrest Gump and watching it multiple times and owning the soundtrack and like that being a little bit of my gateway into classic rock and stuff. And then as an adult being like, that movie is 
horrible. I almost cursed. I don't know if I can cuss on this show or not. Unfortunately, we run a clean podcast. So yeah, no, I, I this is definitely not me like being a Forrest Gump stan. I only watched it for the first time, uh, the only time a few years ago. And it is not a good movie, but I do recognize that him like running across like a beautifully shot landscape is something that has like definitely been emulated or at least referenced in several ways. So that's the only reason I bring it up. Yeah. So I think that's another part. Like if you liked Forrest Gump, but you like me think that it's overblown boomer trash, then watch the straight story. I think you'll the good elements of Forrest Gump are in the straight story. One of the bad elements is also there. Sissy Spacek plays his daughter and I don't know if she's supposed to be And again, this is based on a true story. So I assume she's based on his actual daughter that he lived with that. And I don't know if she she may be still alive, if she has autism or what she's has mental exceptionalities. And the way Sissy Spacek performs that is she just talks weird. It's not really a stutter. I don't know what to call it. It's some kind of vocal tick. It is somewhat problematic at the time and and retrospectively it, it's something that lynch it's one of lynch's flaws that he sometimes plays people with or uses people with handicaps or whatever else in a way that comes off as comedic to some audiences i think and i don't i certainly don't think lynch looks at those people that way you know, a lot of those people come back and work with him later on other projects and stuff. So I, I think the personal relationship, his actual attitude is in the right place. I just think the way his movies work, you know, that can be a little bit problematic maybe for other people watching them who aren't very thoughtful. And then also the the other problematic thing about Lynch is he's ex- an extremely white director. I mean, this character drives like i said over hundreds and hundreds of miles there is no person of color to be seen in this movie at all and that to me is is a problem yeah it's like watching friends and new york is suddenly all white yeah but yeah (laughs) so let me ask you uh you mentioned your list making what is your list making methodology do you have a list making methodology how do you keep track of pop culture that you want to consume Oh boy, do I have a list making <laughs> methodology. So your team list. See, we have team list on this podcast and team chaos. Sure. I mean, I make lists and then sometimes I will sit and spend 30 minutes deciding on what I'm going to watch next, even though I have a list, even though I have multiple lists. Um, so I joined Letterboxd last year. I have I use that watch list feature that's gotten unruly because like everything I'm interested in watching is on there. So, and it's good. The watch list thing on letterbox is good because you can pull it up and you can do things like filter by what streaming service those movies are on at the time. So there's that. I have a short list on my phone. A lot of times I have shorter lists on my planner or in a notebook or stuff like that. We have a document just for planning things that we're probably going to watch for the podcast. Like I need like a list to organize my watch lists. It's <laughs> kind of nuts. And like I said, a lot of times I'll go to it and be like, I don't want to watch that. I don't want to watch that. You know, Yeah. Uh, my stack of, of Blu-rays and stuff that I haven't opened yet is, a, is its own form of watch list. <laughs> a physical watch list. And then every streaming service I 
subscribe to. Of course, I have a queue or whatever. Do you have any method for getting things off your watch lists, or is it more like you look at your lists and try to figure out what you're in the mood for? So more recently, because the whole like October spooky season, I'm going to try to focus on horror thing really kept me focused. And I think I'd have to look at my letterbox stats, but I really like kind of plowed through some older stuff and backlog stuff and found random new stuff that I love through that focus for a month. So I'm trying to do that. I've like planned some themes throughout the next few months already. Um, I haven't stuck to it already with November, so it's not working super well, but that's what I'm trying to do. But you're trying something new. I totally get it. All right, Andy, let's transition. Mm -hmm. Transition. We are going to transition to the notes where I'm supposed to ask Sam, weren't you going to do The Wheel of Time, book two, Sam? Why didn't you do The Wheel of Time, book two, Sam? You promised me The Wheel of Time, (laughs) book two. The Great Hunt. I I have read approximately 200 pages of The Great Hunt. It was my goal to have it finished by the time the show premiered, which it has. And I wanted to talk about it on the episode, I think, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So it would coincide with the release date. But here's the thing about The Great Hunt. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's 600-ish pages. Mm-hmm. And a third of the way into it, absolutely nothing has happened. It's like Jordan wrote a book and it was like, oh, they like it. I can do a whole series. All right, guys, settle in. And it's like, nothing is happening. Because it's like, okay, now I'm going to tell a 7,000 page story. So relatively speaking, 200 pages of that, but it doesn't make for an interesting book. There is one, one One thing that I will say about this book so far that is really cool, it is about how Moraine, the Aes Sedai we get to know in the first book. Moraine, but okay. We did this last time. It's still not funny. Um, The the uh, we get to meet the the head of the Aes Sedai, Sedai, the the Amerlin seat, whatever you pronounce that. Right, whatever. And like, there's a pronunciation guide in the back of the book. I don't care. The first time that the two of them meet, it's like all ominous because like the superior is talking to the, the, you know, the employee. It's like this. And then, and then she's like, everybody else leave us. And then, and then, so, so the, as soon as they leave, the seat looks at Ma Rain and says, bestie, how are you doing? Because it turns out they grew up together and they're best friends. That is literally the only good part about this book. I'm finished. Hey, uh, Sam, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if, if you think that the start of the Great Hunt is slow, uh, just go ahead and drop the series. <laughs> yeah. I also want to tell you to go ahead and watch the Amazon series because it moves fast. It has no choice. Okay, so you're going to talk about a U2 song instead. No, Andy, although I'm very proud of you for knowing that One Tree Hill is a song on U2's seminal album, The Joshua Tree. No, I'm actually going to talk about the show of the same name, which did in fact get its name from the song off of U2's seminal album, The Joshua Tree. One Tree Hill is a show that ran on the WB and then the CW for nine seasons between 2003 and 2012. Fun fact, it objectively has the second best 
theme song in WBCW history. Oh my god. Uh, okay, okay. First of all, I know I'm going to regret this question, but what is the first objectively best theme song in you have CWWE to know. history? You have to know. Somebody save me. That's right. Okay. Okay, good, good, good. I, I just wanted to make sure we were on the same page there. That Smallville, despite having now never value almost zero value as a show due to one of its main cast members. <laughs> she was my favorite. <laughs> That's what's so sad. Is that the Remy Zero song yes. you're talking about? Yes. And I'll do you one better. The Golden Hum is actually a really good album. So Okay. I lis- I think I listened to that when that came out. Yeah. I totally I, forgot about it till you brought it up just now, but I, I will say that uh, the Smallville theme does have what I believe is the best callback in the uh, Arrowverse. Yes, ever um, hands down. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I know I'm going to regret this because it's a show based on an U2 yeah. song. U2 famous for being the band with the edge right oh that that's right that man was this supposed to be right uh <laughs> anyway he's gonna this, run out of steam and ask the question eventually what's this show about so once upon a time in the small town of tree hill on the coast of north carolina <laughs> to, which is which which is totally not wilmington andy I'm aware it's totally not Wilmington. Okay. (laughs) Lucas, a young boy, wants to play basketball. He loves basketball. One day, his uncle helps him join the high school team, the star of which is his half-brother, Nathan. As Nathan and Lucas go from enemies to something vaguely resembling friends, we get to know the other characters in Tree Hill, Peyton. Nathan's girlfriend, who has the music taste of literally every manic pixie dream girl combined, and has a webcam in her bedroom that's on at all times. Peyton's best friend, Brooke, the kind of unrealistic cheerleader party girl that only the worst, most terrible middle-aged man could write. And Haley, Lucas's best friend, who is the smartest girl you know, and who no one for a second possibly believe is quote-unquote not pretty the first season of the show is 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 hijinks ensue the second season really starts to move pieces around and do stuff with the characters i'll just tell you one other thing real fast this show has a lot of people you know when it was airing the only thing i knew about the show was after the end of smallville or supernatural i guess you'd hear hi this is chad michael murray blah 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 like that's the only thing i knew about the show but it does indeed star real-life terrible person Chad Michael Murray as Lucas. It stars real-life accused Chad Michael Murray of fraud five months into their marriage so she could get an annulment because she made a terrible mistake, Sophia Bush. Real-life basketball player James Lafferty as Nathan, so the show has credibility. Real-life Minkus from Boy Meets World is in this show. The best character, yes. Yes. Real-life singer-songwriter Bethany Joy Lenz, who plays Haley, who in the second season becomes, you guessed it, a singer-songwriter. Real-life failure-to-launch actor in the 90s who finally found a steady job and good for her, Maura Kelly. Real-life MTV Last Days of Pompeii VJ and future Mrs. Papa Negan Winchester, Hillary Burton. 
And, and we're talking about this today because this is one of Tessa's favorite shows. And today is Tessa's birthday. We started her birthday by watching the second season finale. Could you just for a minute tell us what you like so much about this show? Why this show was so, so seminal, so important to you? This is an elder millennial show. You are not an elder millennial. So this is, this is like me watching Say by the Bell. I was too young. I was kind of thinking, you know, a few years ahead. This is clearly a better show than Say by the Bell because what wouldn't be? But tell us what do you like so much about it? Uh, you've said all these like terrible things about the show and now people are going to be like, Tessa has terrible taste in television. I'm not done. <laughs> this is not what I would call a good show, <laughs> but is what I would call an engrossing show. I watched the show when I was a teenager. I watched like all of it. I remember watching it as it came out when I finally like caught up to later seasons. The show only gets worse after the fourth season, so I don't know why I kept watching it. But I grew up, as I've said on this show before, I have grown up, I grew up in a conservative household. I was not allowed to watch a lot of things. And so when I finally, as a teenager, got the ability to watch things on my own without my parents realizing it, I watched a lot of things. This show, for me, even though, as you mentioned, it was written, it was created and mostly written by a terrible person, Mark Schwann, who we now know was doing some really shady stuff behind the scenes of the show. It's a really interesting show in that it's a soap. It is a soap with teenagers who talk like adults, which we've seen done over and over again now. Uh, Gossip Girl obviously is sort of riffing on this show, even though it's a much more stylish and classy version of this show. Uh, Riverdale, although that also has a lot of DNA in common with Twin Peaks, it also has a lot of DNA in common with this show, up to and including the fact that this small town cannot possibly exist in the United States as it is. We've counted, what, like five adults that have been in the show so far since the beginning? And that includes random teachers that we only see once. Like, these children do not go to school. Anyway, yeah, it's a bizarre, bizarre show. But, like, I have to say it was very formative in the way that I was starting to, like, think about, like, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to, like, have likes that are outside of your parents? Uh, Peyton was the girl that I wanted to be, wanted to be with. Um, Sophia Bush also, even though she's kind of written as this like airheaded cheerleader in the first season, she really grows a lot in the second season to become a really interesting inversion of like the party girl stereotype. Haley is really interesting. The other thing that Sam did not mention about this show, which was another major reason for me watching it, is that the music of this show is amazing. The show is really invested in like this musical moment that was happening at the time that it aired. And I had not heard any of this music before. And so every time I watched an episode, I was adding new artists to my playlists, to my to listen to lists. This show has a, I don't know what you'd call trick. A, it's supposed to be like an all ages club, but the teenagers are clearly drinking alcohol there. So I don't even know. It's like that, uh, that uh, bar in Buffy where it's like, how do the adults know about this bar and not shut it down? Anyway. Have you never lived in a town with a bar like that? Apparently not. Uh, I mean, the Wreckers, uh, Michelle Branch has been on this. Cheryl Crow has been on it so far by the time we get to season two. Uh, Jimmy Eat World has been on it. Uh, Gavin DeGraw, obviously, who does the theme song, has been on it a couple of times. You get to see a lot of music in this show. And that's not even talking about like the stuff that's not 
performed on the show by a musician. I'm also thinking about later seasons where some of my favorite all-time artists have been on the show. So yeah, it is kind of a dumb soap, but it's like my dumb soap, if that makes sense. (sighs) You mentioned, Sam, that you watched season two. Why aren't we talking about season one? And is season two any good? Because you know what? I don't think I would like this. The answer to the first question is simple. We watched season one before we started doing the podcast. So that's that's why. Yeah. We'll just wait until 2022 when we talk about season three of Gossip Girl. The one in which we find out what made Taylor Momsen want to die. And perhaps we can get closer to answering my question. Is Dan really also the same guy from you? Or is it just the coincidence he's played by the same actor? I don't know. I'm waiting to find out. So yeah, is season two any good? Well, again, the show was created by a living monster. And this this monster creates some very unbelievable high school things. He's clearly living out a weird adolescent adult fantasy. It's just bad, man. But I gotta tell you, for all the stereotypes that he writes, he got one thing right. Because if, if you're a monster of a person, the one thing you should be able to do is write a monster of a person. He did. The only character I have not mentioned who's a main character is Dan. Played by, played wonderfully. Either Paul Johansson is either a monster of a person or he's doing the best acting job of his life. I mean, I don't know. But Dan is the father of Nate and Lucas. Let me run down some of the things that Dan the most evil person who ever lived in a fictional or real tele- like world. Here's a list of what he did this season and only in this season. There was the time that he blamed his wife's prescription pill addiction on his son. I can't keep a straight face. Let me try again. The time he blamed his wife's prescription pill addiction on his son and told his son that. The time he lied about his heart condition being worse than it was so his wife wouldn't leave him. The time that his wife passed out in the yard because she got addicted to pills because of the thing he did earlier, and he turned the sprinklers on. The time he convinced his emancipated son, because by the way, in the first season, his son hates him so much he gets emancipated and married. So the time he tried to convince his emancipated son to get an annulment, And when that didn't work, the time he visited Haley, his wife, and tried to convince her to get an annulment in the most lecherous way possible. There's also the time he hit on Haley's older sister, who's 22. There's the time that he blackmailed his other son by paying for his heart medication that he needed to not die and then took it away from him. There's the time he threatened to get his son's basketball coach fired. There's the time that he called his son's basketball coach an alcoholic and insinuated that his eye troubles, a physical ailment that he needed to have surgery for, was actually indicative of some sort of moral failing. The time he outed Karen, who's Lucas's mom, and, you know, her, uh, you know, father of Lucas, woman he slept with once, the time he outed Karen's relationship with her business professor. Now, you probably shouldn't sleep with your professor who's literally teaching ethics, but that's not the point. There's the time that Karen's professor... That he, he got Karen's professor deported back to New Zealand. There's the time he broke the giant glass wall of his office, which multiple people have broken because they hate him, as you can imagine. But the time he did it himself to 
further attempt to intimidate the business professor, there's the time he told Karen that her anger at him after all this is really just passion. Like, she's not over him. And then immediately after that, there was the time that he kissed Karen without her consent. And I know what you're thinking. There's the time he embezzled from his auto dealership that he owns, because of course he did. There's the time he gaslit his son into believing that he wasn't doing that. And finally, the time he hired a woman to honey trap his brother, convince him to fall in love with her, marry her, and then ditch him at the altar in order to destroy him because he slept with Dan's wife one time while they were on a break. I mean, who hasn't done? (laughs) Whomst among us. (laughs) All those things. Sam, let he who is without... uh, Break Dan's glass window. (laughs) Let he he without without a glass window. There was a point where somebody, like, like the fifth person storms into his office and yells at him, like, please break the glass, please. And of course they break the glass. I'm like, all right. (laughs) We did a writing. It's great. Okay, so... It, season two is not good. Oh, no, it's it's great. I enjoyed every moment of this. Every single screaming at the moment TV, with one exception. I told you that the show is created and written by a monster of a person. So it's ironic. He had no way of knowing this. But retrospectively, it's a really cool move that this monster of a person makes a seminal plot point in this season. The song... When the Stars Go Blue by Ryan Adams. It's like, come on, dude. Ah, oh, that a, I loved it. I can't wait to watch season three. We'll probably start watching it tonight. from that time period not have a Ryan Adams song? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. But they made this like a season-long thing. Yeah. My, oh, it's a my favorite, song. because Haley covers it as part of like her debut into singer-songwriter so- dumb and my my favorite part is when a character starts like playing it and singing it and nathan gets up and walks away because it reminds him too much of his wife who has left him at this point to become a singer songwriter they're juniors in high school and and she goes the person who's playing it goes what it's ryan adams and i'm like yeah that's why you should walk away (laughs) they are they are juniors in high school i guess i shouldn't have mentioned that and you might not have noticed Anyway. Anyway. I have just one just, question for you, Just Cessna. one. Which season is Stay Out of It, Nick Lachey, from? Oh, God. I forgot Nick Lachey was on this show. I want to say that's season six. I want to say it's season that six. That tracks. <laughs> okay. Actually, hold on. That reminds me of one other thing. The, the person, the woman that Dan hires. Oh, yeah. To destroy Keith is none other the newbie girl herself, Maria Manunos. And I told Tessa, I get one newbie joke per episode. And then, and then I found out she's also the host of Roku Recommends. So I, I, let's say I, I know Tessa her from does my not gas station. Know, I mean, Tessa knows this. You don't know this, but I make jokes about Maria Manunos every time we go to the movie theater. So this was really just. I had so much fun. We're going to start watching season three tonight. I can't wait. Let's not talk about this anymore, though. All right. So, Gossip Andy. Gossip Girl 2022. Gossip Girl 2022. All right. So now that we've gotten Sam's soap in for the, for the year, Andy. Yes. You also changed what you were doing, which is partially why you're so tired this morning. That what is correct. What were you originally going to do? 
I was originally going to talk about a video game called Dead by Daylight, but let's not talk about Dead by Daylight because let's talk about Wait, it's a, a monster song? that's eating my world. Is that a U2 song, Dead by Daylight? I hope not. <laughs> so instead, you did Haunting of Hill House. Yes. What is, it, it, in case somebody in this that is listening to this has not had access to Netflix or perhaps was not part of the cultural discourse when this, this show came out, what is Haunting of Hill House? <sighs> the Haunting of Hill House is a 2018 horror drama series directed by Mike Flanagan of uh, Doctor Sleep and Midnight Mass fame about a family who lived in a maybe haunted mansion at some point uh, early on in their life. And then uh, one night they had to leave very, very, very quickly, very, very unexpectedly while they were still children. And the uh, the ghosts that carry on in them in present day from the horrible things that happened in quote that house uh as they always refer to it that house and um how they carry those uh, traumas and guilt with them into adulthood and uh deal with it so this is based on a novel by shirley jackson which we actually had friend of the podcast elise a few weeks ago on to talk about a biopic about shirley jackson but as far as I know, this is not, because I have not seen all of this season, this is not a direct adaptation. It's more of a inspired by adaptation. I have no idea. Uh, depends on how the uh, other movie. I, I know I've seen like two movies that have been based on Hill House in some way or another. There, there was an old movie. I, I don't know. Maybe it was The Haunting of the House on the Hill. I, I don't. I, I. No, that's a board game. I love it. That's okay. why I know. I love that board game. Okay. But anyway, what? Why? There's the Vincent Price movie House on Haunted. Yeah, Hill. yeah, yeah. Maybe it was that. Of? Okay. It, it, it. They were movies that had haunted, or haunting, hill and house in some order. So before I ask you what you thought of this show, why is this Bard's favorite Netflix show? My dog loves loves this Netflix show. I I'm so happy to get a Bard story on the. On the podcast, yay, Bart. You, you, you know, I, I thought I was going to talk about Cowboy Bebop because Corgi representation in media and how he would love that. But the thing is, this is this is a spooky show. This is a scary, scary, spooky show. When I watched the first episode, I was I was eating some chips, and I guess I got a little intense, and <laughs> Bard jumps up on the couch to cuddle with me because I'm clearly freaked out. He sprawls across my lap, letting me pet him. And then I hear crunch, crunch, <laughs> crunch, crunch. <laughs> then a few weeks later, when I decided to be brave enough to try episode two, which was last night. So I went from episode two to the end of the series in one night. I was eating Chipotle and I'm sensing a theme here. As we as we have discussed before during my uh, assault on an ex girlfriend um, from watching. Oh wait, I okay okay. I, I I need to phrase that properly. It was not a purposeful assault. I jumped so hard I elbowed her in the face. <laughs> it's important that you contextualize that you were in a movie yeah. theater. You elbowed her in the face accidentally. Right, right, right. Uh, because there's a jump scare at the end of the movie. Anyway, so I had a, um, a, a half of a soft taco in my hand, and I jumped. And that half of a soft taco 
landed on the ground. <laughs> now I was expecting like a bodyguard. I I could have sworn that this soft taco was actually one of the ghosts in this show because it was only on the floor for a split second before it just disappeared. So Bard now associates food with scary movies. I gotcha. Scary TV. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he got to eat his half taco and uh, was very, very happy about that. Gotcha. I'm sure he also liked just like hanging out with you. Mm. Dog, dogs like that. Maybe. Mm. Maybe. Either way. So, so you mentioned Mike Flanagan is the creator, producer, director of this show. How does this compare to some of his other stuff like Midnight Mass or Dr. Sleep, like you mentioned? Uh, okay. Uh, well, if you have seen Midnight Mass, you will be familiar for the very, very long scenes of people talking about something that just drags <laughs> on and on and on about having these almost like play-like dialogues uh, back and forth. And that Mike Flanagan's really good at that. And they're everywhere here. They're they're absolutely everywhere here. However, this show is one. Of, okay, I'm I'm one of these people who a lot of people say, "Oh, jump scares are cheap." Oh, do, do, you know, do, you, it doesn't uh, it's so dumb when a horror movie is just jump scares. No, jump scares are hard to do. Anything in film is hard to do, and it's getting an emotional reaction out of you. So you know, be be quiet. That being said, I hate jump scares. <laughs> <laughs> they do feel cheap. And this show has beautiful moments of just pure dread and creepiness and uh, and just so well done. And then it'll just go jump scare, jump scare, jump scare, jump scare. So it's this weird thing where it wants to make sure that you're in the um the the jumpy mood when the just dread happens. Because this could end up being a jump scare, but more often than not, it's it's not a jump scare. Um, but there's so many of the jump scares uh, that are really well telegraphed that the ones who that are not telegraphed are uh, incredibly effective. Uh, and Midnight Mass did not have; I think it had like two jump scares and then one even slight moment of terror. I was about to say, Dr. Sleep does not have a lot of jump scares in it. It manages to be very creepy and very scary without right. that. Because, yeah, that's also why I couldn't finish. I watched the first episode of Haunting of Hill House, mm -hmm. and I have a thing about ghosts, as we've talked about on this show before. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I am not going to be able to handle this show. So I stopped. Well, Maybe I'll go back and watch it again someday. <laughs> no, I'll, but... I'll, I'll tell you one thing that this show does. And I, I, like, I had to look up online to make sure that this wasn't just a goof that I caught. But I caught a actor in full dress in the background in a scene where she should not have been. And sure enough, the show just has ghosts in the background that are that they don't do any jumps. They don't do any movements. They're just there. And only if you're lucky do you get to see them or even notice them. It is so unsettling. And uh, yeah, the main character is pretty much uh well i'd consider the main character played by uh michael huisman uh he's pretty much stephen king his name's stephen crane pretty obvious there but then again i don't know what the name of the shirley jackson character would have been so either way all of the acting's really good each of the first five episodes focuses on one of the crane children 
with the fifth episode having quite possibly one of the most impactful twists that leads into a really bizarre like three take episode in episode six but it almost feels like they should have just made it into one take because it's so effective it's so weird it's so weird to like you know they're trying something these incredibly long extended takes and then they just decide like okay we'll cut we'll cut now for like no real reason it's so weird but beyond i'm sure just like exhaustion of the cast yeah 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 uh this is fine this ultimately is fine i don't think the um the conclusion was satisfying it certainly wasn't worth staying up as late as i did being as tired this morning as i am but it happened and it's done uh i have watched this i have scratched it off my list and i will jump right onto the haunting of bly manor which is based on turn of the screw very loosely so another based on turn of the screw like so it's loose. How 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 many adaptations of Turning of the Screw? There was the one with Finn Wolfhard this year, wasn't there? There will be as many adaptations of Turn of the Screw as there are of Jane Eyre. We will be making those adaptations until we have all died and the universe has gone to heat death. Wow. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Finn Wolfhard. The Turning. Okay. Well. Andy, I'm going to uh, borrow Beautiful Moments of Dread for the name of the next metal band that I start. Please do. Nice. Yeah. That's uh, a good, yeah. yeah. You don't even need to borrow it. I will I will lease it to you very cheaply. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Is that is that better? <laughs> <laughs> it depends well, on how famous you get. You, wait, you, you go ahead and use keep... it, and then we'll discuss it once you uh, get a few hits on the radio. Yeah. Okay. I mean, somebody's <laughs> got to buy Bart his tacos. Also, I just want to say this is the the best pop culture property starring an actor from E.T. who isn't Drew Barrymore. What actor from E.T.? Elliot. I don't I don't I don't know. I I I think I've watched E.T. like once. He was much younger then. All I know about E.T. is it's the first movie my parents saw on the first date. That is pretty much it. Yeah. And I watched it once. Yeah, Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas. But but yeah, the, the acting's really good. Um, I really want to see more out of these actors. I want to see. I'd love to see even more out of these characters. Uh, the ones that um make it out of the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's good. Uh, there's also some disappointments with the scares. Um, because they bring things up that never come up. Like there's apparently this giant ghost dog. But do we ever see a giant ghost dog? No, we do not. Speaking of giant ghost dogs. Which that would be great if it worked. Forrest as a, Whitaker it, is the next topic. Yeah, it'd be great if that worked as a transition, but it doesn't. So speaking of ghost dogs, Tessa, it really doesn't work. I don't know. <laughs> say again. Speaking of ghost dogs, Tessa, what is the outer worlds? Okay, that was a terrible transition. There are no ghost dogs in the outer worlds. Well, it's not a U two song either. It's not a U two song either, so that doesn't really work. I was originally going to read the Summer Prince for this, but I'm still about halfway through the Summer Prince, so I will be talking about it sometime early next year. The Outer Worlds is a 2019 action role playing game, which those of you who know me know that action role playing games are my jam. I love them. They are my favorite. First person perspective. This was done by Obsidian, who did Fallout New Vegas. So the game, very briefly, this is the premise of the game. The game is set in an alternate future that diverged from our world in 1901, when President William McKinley was not assassinated. As a result, Theodore Roosevelt never became president, and 
large business trusts were never broken up, which led to a hyper-corporate, class-centric society dominated by the power of mega-corporations, which by the distant future in which this game takes place, have begun to colonize space and terraform alien planets in order to expand their consumer base. Earth residents are encouraged to undertake efforts to colonize these systems, leading to like a company town situation in which they are literally renting their homes, their food, etc. from the company and also doing work for them. Among these systems is Halcyon, which is a six-planet star system, which is kind of the the world of this game. Traveling to Halcyon requires the usage of advanced space spacecraft with a specialist skip drive and a 10-year cryosleep. So if you go from Earth to Halcyon, you are asleep for 10 years. In 2285, two colony ships are dispatched to colonize Halcyon, the Hope, and the Groundbreaker. While the Groundbreaker successfully arrives in Halcyon, the Hope and its cargo mysteriously disappear in transit, becoming like this myth. But anyway, the game starts because 50 years later, mad scientist and anti-capitalist Phineas Wells finds the Hope and awakens the lone surviving passenger, the Stranger, who is played by you, the person who is playing this game. So that is the basic premise of this, is that you have been awakened by Phineas Wells. You have to like find your bearings and figure out what you're doing in this new world, uh, this new system. And you have to make decisions on whether you're going to ally yourself with the anti-capitalism of Phineas Wells, or if you are going to become a pawn for the mega corporations that control the system. So... This is made by Obsidian, the same folks who brought us Fallout New Vegas, who leased the Fallout name from Bethesda. So my question is, so kind of like Fallout? So I actually haven't played that much Fallout. I didn't really like the mechanics of the one game that I played. I might try again at some point. Yeah, it was it was game three. That's what I tried to play. And I didn't really like it that much, so I, I haven't... The mechanics of this game, though, from what I know, are actually really similar. They're upgraded in a lot of ways that I really appreciated, but it does feel like playing a Fallout game, especially at the beginning. You're playing a character that doesn't really have a name. You can design your character, though, in terms of, like, you can design their appearance. They can be any gender, any age, etc. You can, you know, name your character. You can specialize the strengths of your character through perks and skill trees, which seems very much like Fallout. And the actual dialogue trees and choice trees also are reminiscent of Fallout. You do not hear the character speak during the game, but you make choices based on a menu of things that you can say to different characters. All of that feels like Fallout, but to me, it's very different because it leans much more into the space sci-fi aspect of it, and it goes even more, it doubles down even more in its satire of capitalism as a system. Uh, does it double down? Depending on which way you play. I, sh- I guess I should say that. Uh, yeah. No, I, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just be quick uh, because uh, I, I play this game, uh, I don't think it has a different joke other than corporations are dumb and evil. Well, yeah. But does but it need a different joke? It, it, it needs something a little bit more interesting, yeah. I, I don't think so. I think corporations are dumb and evil, so I, I appreciated it. <sighs> I mean, it really sounds like the only thing that's missing from this game is a Pip-Boy. Anyway, uh, only Fallout fans know that one. Or a Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's an alien joke yeah, for okay. listeners who don't know. <laughs> so 
other than corporations are dumb, what did you like about it? What I actually the thing that drew me to this game originally is that I was really ready to do another RPG <laughs> because I love them, as you all know. But I wasn't ready to sink hundreds and hundreds of hours into a new game. I just don't I did not have the mental wherewithal to do that when I was looking at new games to play. What I love about this is that it's 20 hours of main story. It is a very small, self-contained. You could play this theoretically over the course of a week into a weekend. If you wanted to 100% it, which you know I love 100%ing things, it might take you a little bit longer. But even with all of that, it might take you 25 to 30 hours of gameplay. So I really appreciate that about this game. As much as I love a massive game like The Witcher 3 or Cyberpunk to varying degrees, it feels really nice to be able to just play something that's a shorter story that you can just sort of get through and enjoy over the course of a week. I also feel like I'm going to be more likely to replay this game than I would something that's as massive as like an open world game. I mean, it is open world, but it's not a huge open world. So that that's also a consideration that went into this. I also really like the you can customize your character strength and weaknesses in inter- interesting ways in, up to and including I love that like if you make too many mistakes in one area like if you fall off of too many buildings which I tend to do because I'm terrible at like vertical stuff in games it will actually say you have gained a fear of heights because you have fallen off of too many things and that actually affects some of your some of your ability to play the game you do get perks to counteract that or you might be able to specialize in other certain areas i also really love the story i loved the the art of this game which i think is the best part of this game this game has like a very art deco style so it's very different than fallout in some ways it it's sort of infused with like a sci-fi western aesthetic one of the creators described it as diesel punk deadwood so it's got kind of that like Western expansion type of thing, but it's got this very art deco, like corporations, like the the cut screens are all like corporation ads, which are really funny. The game is inspired by obviously Fallout, Futurama, Deadwood, and True, True Grit. So those are all like things that go into this particular game. I also really liked that the choices weren't morally coded. Like you can say like obviously that siding with a cat, like a corporation is morally evil which it probably is but there are like shades of gray in this game like you don't know that siding against a corporation if the outcome is going to be good or bad like what's going to happen if the corporation collapses will we just get a bunch of space pirates instead so that i think is a really interesting part of this game as well hard disagree there hard again whatever I also really loved that the people in this game, like the commitment to talking about capitalism, it's not just like the fun, like pop art ads. It's also that like when you meet new people in this game, depending on their corporation, the way that they interact with you is like an ad for like whatever company they have. Like the first person you meet, they're like every other sentence is like, the spacer's choice, like choose this product. And I just, I found that to be like really an interesting way of talking about the way that people can belong to corporations and belong to certain brands. So I appreciated that. Is there anything you didn't like about it? And did this game have overall a mass effect on you? I love mass (laughs) effect. I've mentioned this before. I'm not going to go through it again. Um, I don't always like first-person games because I spend hours usually customizing my character at the beginning of RPGs. I love character creation and that part of it. 
And so it feels kind of weird to be like, I'm going to go put all this time into my character's physical appearance. And then I'm literally never going to see them except for in like the menu when I'm like changing their armor or whatever. So that is something that I wish it was more of a third person game. That's just me though. The other thing I don't like is that there's no romance for the main character, which I love romance in my video games. It's one of the reasons I love Mass Effect so much. And there's no way you can romance your friends, even though there's a wonderful cast of supporting characters. You can help some of your friends with their romances though, like give them advice and stuff. So I appreciate I appreciate that. I also like fully voiced RPGs like Mass Effect. I feel like at the in this day and age, in this day and age of making video games, have your characters have voices. Like, I like my Mass Effect voices. I like my Witcher 3 fully voiced character. I like my, even Cyberpunk. I like the, the voice work in that game as well. Just have your characters have voices. I don't care that it's like Fallout. If I wanted to play Fallout, I'd play Fallout. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so I, I really appreciated a lot of this game. I really enjoyed how short it was. There were just maybe a couple of things that I would personally change, but again, they're like personal preferences. So if you like action RPGs, if you like Fallout style of gameplay, if you like science fiction or anti-capitalism, anything that I've just said, this is the, the game for you. All right, so tune in next week. We are doing a Sam Assigns episode. It is Sam's turn to assign us homework. Sam, what homework are you assigning us? All right, guys, you better wise up, get a bunch of pudding cups, and strap in because we're going clear with P.T. Anderson. All right, so where can people find us online? Jarrett, where can people find you on the interwebs? Um, I'm Gernoise on Twitter and Letterboxd. That's G-R-R Noise. Wild Pretty Things is my podcast. You can go to wildprettythings.podbean.com or just go to my website, gernoise.com, spelled the same way, and click on podcast. And if you want, you can start with the episode that I'm in, which is the Alien episode. If you're a patron, if you're a patron, oh, okay. Currently, an exclusive episode because the content was so good. It was just so good. I mean, you can you can pay a little bit to hear me talk about Alien, right? It's too. Yeah, but you can yeah. also pay us. Where, where's our patron, Tessa? <laughs> where's our patron? We'll have to talk about that maybe next year. Andy, where can people find you online? I just really quickly want to legally say that nothing Paul Thomas Anderson did is in any way a reference to any uh, organization with uh, that goes clear in any way, shape, or form. And <laughs> you can find me online at Andy Noted. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where friend of this pod, Nigel, and I read through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we've talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Visit our website at www.monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.